This episode is made possible thanks to listeners like you. Want to support independent food radio? Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate today. Hello and welcome to Why Food, a podcast about entrepreneurs, innovators, and career changers who make up the food industry here in New York and all over the country. I'm your co-host, Ethan Frisch. And I'm your co-host, Valerie Lomas. And we've survived a miserable hot weekend in oh New York gosh. City. Oh my gosh. It was unbearable just walking from the subway to my apartment. I was moving into my new apartment this oh weekend, my which goodness. is a four-floor walk-up. And <gasps> of course, I had to pick the hottest weekend of the year to schlep couch parts up oh, four flights of stairs. That's impressive. Uh, and you're still here. I didn't collapse. You didn't collapse. Uh, I came close. Did no, you drink was... a lot of water? Yeah. Okay, that's good. Thank you. Thank you, <laughs> Thank you for your concern. Um, that's always how it is. Right. It really is. It's always the hottest day of the year you can move. Yeah, exactly. Well, welcome to Flip Biddleman, who's the uh, general manager and partner at Gertie, uh, which is a, an awesome, fairly new, right? Fairly yeah, new restaurant new. in Brooklyn. Thank so you Flip, for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Tell us a little bit about, about Gertie. What What is it? Sure. Uh, Gertie's in Williamsburg. Um, we, I mean, simply put, we say we're good food every day. We want to be the place that you could come in the morning, have a breakfast sandwich, coffee, come back for lunch, have a salad or a sandwich, something healthy or as healthy as you want, and then, uh, you know, maybe stay for happy hour, have a draft cocktail in the backyard, um, come back for dinner for a rotisserie chicken and some natural wine. We really just want to be something for the neighborhood that you can come back and do a bunch of different things. Do you think, uh, would Gertie have been different if it had been in a different neighborhood? Is there a particular identity? Uh, yeah, you're in Williamsburg, right? That's, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think it would have been the same. We were looking at at different places, different neighborhoods. Um, but I think the overall the overarching theme is the same. Um, and it's it was, pretty casual. It's like a, a countertop experience. That's or? right. It's a, what we say is counter service. And mm-hmm. we definitely have counters everywhere, but you order at least during the day, from a, a counter. Um, a like register. old school. Old school. I love that. Yeah, and it's like you, you queue up, sit down, and we'll bring you your food, but all the thing is is you order right at the counter. Right. Yeah. Why did you set up the restaurant like that? Well, we really wanted to do something that was casual. Um, a lot of it was stemmed from the back end of things financially. Like, it makes more sense to not have a server per a group of tables. You can come up to the counter and only have a barista taking orders. But we really didn't want a, the hospitality part to, to be removed from the equation. So all of our servers are really friendly and will talk you through either like the wine list during the day if, you're, if you want a glass of wine um, or any of those food items. And it's not just going to be, you know, one of those eye-rolling servers that, <laughs> <laughs> that you might have. Uh, you know, everyone's really warm and friendly. Um, yeah, that sounds very, it does sound very Williamsburg. It is, is that and right? I, okay, cool. And I love the, the natural wine day drinking concept. I love yeah. that. I'm here for that. And I feel like we'll get to this, uh, or we could get to it now, but I mean, you've talked about the restaurant being uh, sort of nostalgic, uh, paying homage to a, a certain time, you growing up in New York, your, your partners likewise growing up in New York City. Um, but I don't know, my association at least with old school New York institution is institutions in general is like grumpy people behind the counter everyone's like fine here's your food totally. no soup for you yeah, right yeah. exactly that, that's me like not growing up in new york that's right? so funny the seinfeld <laughs> reference yeah. right. that's something that we have all over our menu it's like seinfeld reference we've like the big i don't know if you watch seinfeld a lot I, of it i i, I have you yes. have okay yes. all right well i mean you made the reference so 
yeah, we have like a big salad, which is a homage to Elaine at the diner. Um, Poppy's duck, which is like our, our rotisserie duck, is Poppy is a character in Seinfeld, and it's also a, a nickname for a grandfather, which Gertie is my business partner, Nate's grandma. So it's kind of playing to that. But, but no grumpy, not the grumpy part that no, Ethan's that's referring That's disappointing. To. I, 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 know. I feel like I, I you know, I love the grumpy server. The like, <laughs> like here's your coffee and splash half it on the table. Totally. Or the like, uh, I, in, in a certain type of place. I don't know. We just had lunch at Roberta's and they have a kind of a thing, which anyone who's eaten at Roberta's will know. But um, that, like, that's part Bushwick of their... Thing, yeah, it's a Bushwick thing, not a Williamsburg Yeah, sure. right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Thank you, Valerie. Well, I think um, for us, like, we definitely have a, a California-esque vibe to, a, to the restaurant um, aesthetically. And I think we want to give more of that California vibe yeah. out in service, but still, you know, paying homage to uh, our New York City roots. Um, yeah, can we talk a little bit about the aesthetics? Because, sure. um, I mean, you mentioned, like, you kind of were in Venice, the Abbott Kinney area, and right. you were just inspired by, like, the bright colors, the laid-back vibes. Like, so can you tell me maybe a little bit about how your partners and, you know, the people that you collaborated with for the aesthetics of the restaurant? Great question. Um, so Nate, my business partner, uh, this is his baby, as I said. Uh, Gertie's his grandma, and... He was definitely influenced by a lot of the California restaurants, mostly in L.A. Did he live there? Didn't you? Have he you guys didn't. Lived there? He just kept. All of us have visited there frequently. I think mm-hmm. when you grow up in New York, your friends either stay in New York or they go to L.A. I don't know if you felt the same thing or. Do no. people who go to L.A. come back to not. New York? <laughs> yeah, I think that's. Because I'm an L.A. to New York person. Really? Yeah. Okay, so I mean, then you could relate, right? I mean, it, it's different. <laughs> it is different. Well, how do you like it here? Um, I mean, I've been here eight years now, so, oh, so you like I guess it. I like it enough. And you know, I, I put New York in my Instagram handle, so I'm I'm here for. You're committed. I'm, I'm stuck here. I'm are, committed. Are you a New Yorker? Uh, no, I'm not a native New Yorker, but I I've been. I've, Would you say you're a New Yorker? Do you like friends ooh. at home now? Um, when I say to friends at home, they are like, no, no, no. They're like, you're not a New Yorker. Okay. But I don't. I don't think Why, I would call myself that, a New Yorker. Do they say that because they feel like you haven't been here long enough or because you I think haven't... people in Louisiana are very territorial over people from Louisiana. Uh, so they're like, oh, no, you are you're a Louisiana girl. Like I was I was referenced at, on like a, a TV thing I did. It said Valerie Harlem, New York. And I got so many like emails and text messages. They were like, why did they say that? Like, cause that's where I live. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. like back to yeah, so back to like Venice and the inspiration right. of the like bright colors at your restaurant and laid back vibes. Yeah, I think we were just trying to create a place that everyone felt welcome and warm when they walked in. Um, I think there's there's not that many restaurants, particularly in Williamsburg or in Brooklyn. There's like that Brooklyn aesthetic. We're kind of looking at it right now. It's industrial. It's definitely warm colors. Um, but like warm in terms of like brick red warm. Yeah, like wood. (laughs) Exactly, wood. And for us, we wanted to do something a little different. Um, Two of our partners, Tony and Zach, they are architects and they helped design, I mean, the entire restaurant, but a lot of elements to it. Um, We have a lot of like Scandinavian design in the restaurant. There's this beautiful like wood plywood arch on the ceiling. Um, it's and it's colorful, clean. right? It's, yeah, it's colorful. We okay. have a great mural um, that just like warms up the space. And I think when people come in, that's the first thing they see. And I think that gives off that feeling like, oh, cool. This is like totally casual. 
and I can just like sit down, order a coffee or that cocktail and just like enjoy myself. And I think we want to be that to a lot of people. Like you can have a, a meeting, people break out their laptops and start going through spreadsheets. And that's together. encouraged. Yeah. I'm, I love I'm okay that. with that. <laughs> but it's also like it can transition to that happy hour. You know, <laughs> you can have a fun time. Um, so I think for us, California definitely inf- inspired the, the atmosphere, but it's still just very New York, um, just in terms of the dishes. So, and, and you had moved through several different careers uh, a couple of years doing a whole bunch of different things um, before you arrived in food or sort of arrived back in food. Uh, tell us about, about some of those experiences, what you did and, and how, you, how you decided to do those things. Right, so uh, I, I actually, my first job was at a hotel on 30th and Park. It was a Regency, the Regency in New York. Um, and I was an intern at 15 and I was moving through every department there. And it was like a really cool, I thought it was a cool job at the time. Um, while I did every little thing you could do at a hotel, like I made some beds, did room service, worked in the restaurant, which was fun. And there's a lot of like big celebrities that, that live there. Uh, George, Wait, they live there? They live there. They have an apartment. Like George Steinbrenner, had a, like the owner of the Yankees, had an apartment there, and I got to go into it. And I was like... <laughs> Anything scandalous? <laughs> Uh, off air (laughs) Um, so that was cool but so I I was interested in hospitality but I didn't really want to pigeonhole myself that that young whatever that meant at 15 was like oh my god do I have to work nights and weekends the rest of my life and that was scary to me Um, so I knew I had to do something passionate with my life and I had a few teachers in my life that really inspired me Um, you know like learning specialists in particular and I, was, I thought that I cared enough about that, so I thought I wanted to be a special ed teacher. And so I was studying that in college for a while. I went to Nashville for school, and I realized again I was pigeonholing myself. I was like, all right, can I, do a, can I be a teacher for the rest of my life? And I started going to a more general major where I could just study business and psychology. And from then I, I was like, I, more importantly, I just want to live and experience the world and I, I was like I wanted to move to another country and we were talking earlier about South Africa that's my first job out of school I moved to South Africa working for a nonprofit, which was like a really fun unique experience. what were you doing with that was it like an NGO or? yeah yeah it was it was a company called Imibala um, I hope they still exist um, they, it was a sponsored child program where I would go into the schools, I'd record kids' stories, take pictures of them, and then we'd find uh, like people from England or uh, all over Europe to, to pay for like a year of their books and their uniforms. It was like really sad because you a kid would be able to go to school, but they didn't have the uniform. They had one uniform, and it would get ragged, and they would feel embarrassed to go to school for that reason. So like this company was like, this is a ridiculous thing. These uniforms are so cheap. Let's just get other people to pay for them. So I started working there for, it was only like four or five months. And then I was traveling from there. But that was a really cool job. What was it about South Africa that that you found appealing? I thought, well, to be completely honest, up front, it was like, okay, I could speak English here. And I could live out of the country. That's a great reason, Everyone was like, you know, very welcoming. But I thought the people there were just really inspiring. Like, very welcoming. I had, like, I worked with a company of all women. um, And they were all just like my my mom. 
They were just my second mom. Like I had to learn how to drive on the other side of the road and they made sure that we like rented a car um, and we would practice on the other side of the road. It was like really sweet and they'd bring me over to a barbecue and we would talk about like things like race relations to a certain extent, which was really fascinating to me, but something that, I mean, at the time, like I, I, was, young, I was too young to really dive deep enough into, but, and it wasn't like right now where it's really important to talk about these things. I mean, it definitely was, but I think I was too immature to realize the parallels between what's happening in the States and, and South Africa. Uh, but that was really it. I mean, it was the English and then the people, the culture. I mean, I, I went there as in high school with my family, we did a safari, but I remember everyone I met was just, come on in, like learn what you can, try this, try that. Um, and that was just a fun, fun place to be. Were you in Joburg? Or? I was just outside of Cape Town. Oh, okay. oh, oh lovely. Yeah. It was, I've heard. It's beautiful. <laughs> it's like cliffs, the ocean. Um, beautiful vineyards. Um, I was 30 minutes outside the city, though. So there were some weekends where I was just stranded with nothing to do because <laughs> you hadn't learned to drive on the other side. Exactly, of the road yet. or it's like expensive to rent a car, right. so I couldn't do that while traveling. Do you have any any particular food memories from from your time there that stick with you? Yeah, yeah. So one of my uh, one of my one of my coworkers brought me to her house for what they call bry, which is a barbecue. And they cooked everything in, uh, in like one of those clay pots. Um, I can't remember the name. Of it. Every culture has a version of that. It's tagine is that is that one of them? Sure. Yeah. Well, it's, so it's like this clay pot. Put rice, some lamb in there, and it was just like one of those cultural experiences. Like, wow, everyone at home must be so jealous of me right now. <laughs> I'm at someone's home. I'm not at a restaurant, and this is like this is happening. This is cool. This is what you move to another country for. And they just made me feel really welcome to be there, so that was that was the experience. And and how did that fit into this the bigger career path that you were? I guess you didn't realize at the time, but that you were working towards around education. Yeah, um, um, I think it's funny because the the nonprofit was also a restaurant, and I realized throughout it I was so interested in the restaurant. I'd go in there every day for lunch because the nonprofit would pay for all of our lunches. And I would just spend my time looking into the kitchen, feeling like, what's going on in there? Because like, I think as a kid, my, my parents did not cook a lot. And I would sit in front of the TV, watch the Food Network. And there's like a mysteriousness to cooking. Like everything's happening behind closed doors. And I would sit there and watch like Ming Tsai or like Emeril, like do something, like break down like a piece of beef and then braise it. And they're like, why is this child interested in this? And I was like, well, because it's like, so cool and mysterious. Um, and I think, you know, working in this nonprofit, I got to have a little peek into that world for the first time. Um, and I don't know, working with working with kids and is just like being in a restaurant. I mean, you personally <laughs> manage a lot of staff that are children and, you know, you're dealing with guests who are not always in the best mood. Whiny, yeah. needy, yeah. I mean, go to brunch at any restaurant and everyone wakes up and they go first thing and they're they're hangry and you have to like find a way to like appease them and make sure they know that they're they are going to eat in the next 20 minutes and it's not going to be the end of the world so there's definitely i think there's that connection between you know the people people food and nonprofits. and maybe that's a big stretch but there's definitely a common thread there yeah it's it's about service right exactly yeah and then you you came back to new york and wound up working in advertising Uh, tell us about that experience that's right so I was doing a, I think like a lot of millennials do, when you when you work at a job, 
that people ask you about social media and you become like the the go-to person on Twitter or Instagram. I mean, this is before Instagram, but Facebook was the thing then. And uh, so I kind of fell into marketing at that nonprofit in addition to recording stories. And I, I thought that was like the one thing I could, I had some skills in or some experience. So I started working at a nonprofit after after coming back from South Africa, I was teaching actually. Then I fell into a nonprofit doing marketing, and I was, I thought I wanted to really figure out the ins and outs of marketing so that I could do that with whatever field I was interested in. So I started working in an advertising agency uh, as a project manager, and throughout that I was like, this is not the career for me. But I learned a lot. I learned a lot about, a lot about managing projects and budgets. Um, and people. I'm dealing with difficult people, I imagine. And oh yeah, oh yeah. Um, that set you up for br- the brunch crowd. It exactly. seems like it's been a theme. The whole, I mean, hotels, nonprofits, advertising. These are all uh, industries with difficult. People. Yeah, it's all Definitely. like service. Yeah. You know, it's all service yeah. for sure. I think you need to narrate my life. <laughs> just, yeah. just be in the background, like, hey, there's there's common threads here. <laughs> Do you not see this? Right. We're talking through things. This is like a, this is like therapy in a way. Right. I see it like that for myself also. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Valerie, is there anything you want to talk about? <laughs> um, so. So how did you, you left advertising. You at some point made a decision that it really wasn't for you. Yeah. Tell us about that, that decision. So I, I remember sitting at my desk and thinking back, like, is this what I want to be doing? Is, are my bosses where I want to be the next few years? I had been there for three years already. And uh, I said, no, <laughs> like, that is not where I wanted. I don't want to be sitting at a desk the rest of my life. I want to be engaging with people. And, and I I didn't. I, I looked back on my days, which we didn't talk about, but my friends and I, we had a stall at Smorgasburg and a catering business that we started while I was working at a nonprofit. We did it on the weekends. And I remember that being like some of the best times of my life. You know, so much fun. First of all, working with your friends is fun, while difficult, <laughs> um, but there's a lot more fun opportunities there that present themselves. And I just wanted to enjoy my day-to-day like I didn't want a nine-to-five to be like a grind and then always living for the weekend um so I was like why don't I go back to those days of working in food and I started applying for random jobs in restaurants with no restaurant experience besides having a my own business but not knowing the the right way to do things so I, I was looking at like Danny Meyer restaurants um which no one was like willing to take me on I think I was applying too high uh, not realizing that you need to start as like a, a food runner or like a busboy most places. And I found this cool program at Blue Hill Stowe Barns. It's like a farm's apprenticeship, which was like nothing else I've ever seen, but I was really inspired by it. And I had read Dan Barber's book, The Third Plate, and I had seen the Chef's Table episode about him, and I was really inspired by it. And I was like, this is where I need to work. Um, and I applied for the apprenticeship. And I went for an interview and went back for a second one. And the person that led the program was was like, I don't know if this is the right program for you based on your essay and what we've talked about. And I was kind of like, well, that's my decision, isn't it? Like, I think it's kind of cool. Um, and she, fortunately, she said to me that she was running, she taught at a program at ICC, the International Culinary Center. And it was a culinary entrepreneurship class. 
and they needed a TA, someone that could help do basic things in the class, help set it up, shut it down at the end of the day, help prepare lunch for all the students, and I could take the class for free. So I did that on the weekends while in advertising, and that kind of cemented uh, like the, the information and like the, the restaurant experience that I thought I needed to go to that next step. Were you still running your smorgasbord pop-up at that no, time? No, you know, I wish we kept that up. We, we were doing that for a while. We did it for a little over a summer and did catering jobs here and there. What were you guys selling? We sold ceviche. Hi. Yeah, ceviche. It was, uh, I loved it. It was fun to make. It's a little labor intensive, a lot of chopping, but no cooking. Um, we were doing it illegally in our uh, apartment in, in Brooklyn and just buying cases of lobster and scallops and mangoes at Restaurant Depot, bring them back to the apartment, leaving work on Friday and just getting to work all night and then grabbing a few beers the other night, waking up six and then setting up our stall. It's like, and that, that was, sounds hard, but it was also so fun. You're doing that with your four closest friends from high school and that's just, it was a blast. Do you have I, any, I don't know, any sort of reflections or recommendations for somebody else who's looking at doing something like that or thinking about uh, in addition to a full-time job, taking on that huge amount of uh, time and responsibility. and Totally. I mean, I think uh, it's always important to have your like have the, the pros in mind, like your goals in mind of why you're doing those things so that you have something to strive for when things are a little shaky. But, like, you know, find something that, you, that you're enjoying, obviously your passion, whether it is food or not, um, and, why, and figure out why you like to do it. And then keep striving for that right I think it's easy to forget why you decided to do a job and I think when I tell a lot of my staff or who start working for me I say you you don't have to choose this as your career just figure out what you like and what you don't like about it because all of my jobs I found out what I don't like and not necessarily what you like and so I always I tell people that and just to have your goals in mind um, and it's so easy to forget what that is yeah we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by you. As an independent member, supported nonprofit, the amazing content you hear on HRN is made possible thanks to our generous community of members and partners. For 10 years, HRN has been a defining voice in America's food movement, and we never would have made it this far without you. Join us in celebrating an amazing decade of food radio and support our summer fun drive by becoming a member of HRN. You can choose from our member gifts and will receive exclusive discounts on HRN events. We truly believe that with your help, we can change the world and our food system one bite or soundbite at a time. But there's no food radio without you. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate before July 31st to do your part to ensure a bright future for your favorite food podcasts. And we are back with uh, Flip Biddleman. He's giving us the rundown of 
of the whole trajectory of his career. He's and pouring out a little mezcal. And also, he just poured us a little mezcal. Thank you for that. Uh, <laughs> it's 2.30. Why not? Yeah. I mean, we're in the restaurant industry right. and we're, we have the opportunity to drink single village mezcal. We so. have to taste, taste, taste them just so you know. Of course. Right? It's all a, about quality control. The, the Heritage Radio Studio has a, a beautiful, well-stocked uh, uh, liquor shelf. So really uh, impressed. Anyway, here we are. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we were just kind of talking about how you went from the nonprofit world to the the stall at Smorgasbord with your friends making ceviche. By the way, when you were talking about the chopping, I was like, that sounds really meditative, actually. It really is. Yeah. I, I mean, I I was you asked Chef, who's my partner now at Gertie, and at the time. He would tell you how terrible I was at chopping mangoes. <laughs> like, I'd get a case of mangoes, and they'd be like, are you guys done yet? Are you done? And I'd look over. I'd be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And there'd be, like, a whole nother case behind. I was like, oh, God. Well, I mean, luckily, <laughs> you don't, you need those skills less now in your, yeah, totally. in your um, position as general manager and partner. So I guess maybe could you tell us a little bit about how how you guys came together and, like, the the idea for this restaurant and how you know you each had a different role in it and what your role was in it right so um will and i after pestle and mortar which was the the ceviche stand we you know i went back to advertising he went on to keep cooking actually and when i was applying for this culinary program and working through that i connected with him again decided to come up with a business plan with him for our, our own restaurant um, it, because the part of the program was to create a business plan and then present it almost like Shark Tank to your class and to like a room of, of business industry professionals and they would just critique you and give you feedback. Um, and so Will and I were working on a project together and it was, it was really convoluted looking back, but it was a good start. And while he was, while he was working on that with me, he had met Nate, who's our other partner, um, Gertie grandchild and uh, he had had this idea for Gertie uh, as a counter service restaurant but you know really took the extra step in terms of hospitality while still being behind a counter and it was something that I thought was like really resonated with me um, trying to be this a community neighborhood spot where people just felt like they could feel comfortable sitting on a laptop and having like a work meeting and a coffee but then could come back with their family and do like a rotisserie chicken with some rice and beans. Um, I just, it did, it really resonated with me. And he, so Nate and Will met and Nate asked Will to be his, his chef. And he's like, well, you know, I'm working on this project with my high school bud Flip and I think yeah, he'd be great, you know, as a GM for the role, uh, for, the, for the business. So he introduced me to Nate, and we all are from the same neighborhood up, up west side in New York, and we had a lot to relate to, um, relate about, and we kind of just kept chatting and talking about how we grew up, what kind of food we were eating, and it just, it made sense. It was like a, it was a good partnership. Um, so and I, I'm curious, like, how did the, I, I mean, so there, I think there are like two main components to starting a business, right? There's the kind of like the know-how, the passion, the savvy, but then there's also the like logistic element of it. Yeah. Like how do you actually like bring this off the ground? Yeah. Well, I mean, fortunately, Nate actually had another restaurant called Huertas um, that Ethan knows about. Uh, he went to nursery school with Jonah, the chef there. 
Um, nursery school. <laughs> We've yeah. known each other since we were like four years old. Yeah, that's great. Right. Well, yeah, so Jonah and Nate opened up a restaurant in the East Village. Um, and so he knew how to, how to do it. And that's... That he was, knew how to like pull the money in for yeah, it. Yeah, he basically. knew how to get investors on board. And he knew what the, how, to, how to look at the financials. And he knew how to sell. So I thought I was a great guy to, to work with and, and learn from, um, particularly on my first restaurant. Did you have uh, kind of very clear conversations in those early days about who was going to be doing what and what each of you was bringing to the metaphorical table, or, or did that emerge more organically? No, that was straight from the get-go. We, we were talking about what our skills were and what I was interested in doing. And at the time, I had just started. I I'd finished the culinary program, and I was started working for Danny Meyer at The Modern, and I was doing all sorts of random jobs. I, you know, I was doing whatever I could do. I was barista, I was bar backing, food running, um, and I just started talking to Nate about that, and he's, you know, he saw a little bit of himself in me too, because he, out of college, he worked at Blue Smoke as a as a food runner and busboy, but also like went to beverage director really quickly, um, and so he just thought, I guess he saw a little bit of me in him, or yeah, vice versa. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, uh, so we talked about what my role would be, and I said I'd really like to be manager. I've I've enjoyed working with people my whole life, and um, and you had that that program at ICC exactly. But that, that, yeah, that program was culinary entrepreneurship right. for sure. Excellent tie-in. Yeah, definitely. So that's that was a clear conversation, and Will was obviously going to be the chef, and Nate was the business guy, um, and this was his his brainchild so I really wanted to be that front of house manager and at the time I still didn't even know what that meant uh, I was still so new to the industry but he brought me into Huertas as well and I uh, was as a server there and became the assistant GM and I got a lot of great experience there uh, were there uh, other business ideas that you had thought about or other other things that you had uh, I don't know wanted to pursue but settled on this idea or were there what were the ideas that kind of got dropped yeah, by the were, side of the road. There were definitely a few ideas. Like when we were coming up with the ceviche stand, we, my high school friends and I, John, Peter, Will, and then Brady, we we, uh, we would meet once a week at one of our apartments and we would just cook dinner for ourselves and figure out what kind of business we would want to do. What, what would stimulate us? Like, And that didn't even just mean business. Like we would plan like a dodgeball tournament. <laughs> like this will be fun during the week. But then we came up with some business ideas, and the time this was before like the movie and a dinner theater existed. But we came up with <laughs> that idea. We thought came up with it. And Nighthawk came out. We're like, shit. <laughs> All right, maybe not so much. Uh, we can't do this. But we thought about a supper club, and that's when Schmorgisberg had just opened. So we decided to do that instead of a supper club. So those were a few ideas. But Will and I had this convoluted restaurant idea that was. It was a, a grocery store and a restaurant with a CSA program involved. So you can come there, get your produce, pick it up, and then you could even talk to a, a vegetable butcher about how to how to clean these these vegetables and what you could do with it. Um, so there was like almost four programs involved in it. And that was the idea I, I presented at ICC. Um, vegetable butcher idea. Vegetable butcher idea. Market restaurant. I had no idea how 
how hard it is just to do one of those things, <laughs> which is a little naive. Have you started doing any vegetable butchery yet? Gertie, is that uh, is that part become part of the program? Next step. This, that's going to be the uh, the fourth Gertie, vegetable CSA butcher. Right. Yeah. Um, well, so tell us about the the process of opening the restaurant. You've got the you've got the crew. You've figured out who's doing what, and and what what happens next. Yeah. So we uh, after getting all the the financial backings, we found a spot. Well, we found a few places that could work location wise. Uh, I think that's. One of the toughest things is to find the right space, but you can't be like too, too uh, critical of a space because anything can happen. Um, you know, we found one place where I was walking around the neighborhood trying to to get signatures from the community. I had no idea how involved getting a liquor license was. I heard horror stories, but I didn't know you had to actually petition for it and then present your case. Um, and we did that for one location, and it was just not a right fit. Then we found another space, which is the second space, which we're currently at. Um, and we started, we got our liquor license presented to the community board and everything went well. And then the next biggest issue was just building out the restaurant. And I think it's something everyone who owns a restaurant can relate to, that nothing goes according to plan. You're, even if you're building a house or doing renovations, there's tons of hiccups. For us, the biggest one was the gas. Uh, we, the, apparently you can tap out a gas line. I didn't know you could do that in New York City. But uh, Marcy Ave, our gas line was tapped out and they had to dig and lay pipe for seven blocks just for our building. Um, and that was not ideal. <laughs> it held us back, but we, we persevered. We did some private events in our basement, cooking uh, out, of, out of an electric kitchen with propane heaters on, just heating up the dining room, doing a little deliveries for for whoever we could cater for um and how long was this whole process because like it sounds like it's a process it is a process for sure i mean i don't even know where to begin like the build out took i want to say a year but maybe i'm just over exaggerating i think we thought we were going to be open last year in last summer and we didn't open until february this year so, so the build out took a year yeah. and maybe like how long did it take to get your financial backers once you guys made a decision? Yes, this is what we want to do. Well, Nate had been working on that for a while. Okay. Yeah. So by he brought time you it, in kind of already moving that along. Yeah. He, he was working on that in the process and it was just getting the right, the right guys involved. Got it. Um, is that, how does that work across restaurants? Is that something that every restaurant in New York city is doing or what, what are the different ways that, that one could finance a well, restaurant? I think there's lots of different ways. I, I'd be lying if I said I was an expert on that, particularly because Nate was doing all the heavy lifting in that regard. But it was there was a few people from who were regulars at Huertas, his other restaurant, that you know really liked what he was doing and wanted to support it. There was a lot of obviously friends and family that want to, you know, contribute in whatever way that is, however small. And then there's some industry people that saw something unique for at least the East Coast um, that was that we just didn't have over here and that could be replicable. Um, so I think a lot of people do it through, you know, friends, family, and I really like the people that do it through Kickstarter. I think that's really cool and, like, it's the best way to use technology and to, like, really create a dream. I'm really inspired by that, um, just crowdsourcing in general. But I, And then I, I'm sure there's just the 
the wealthy people that can just <laughs> throw down the cash. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so you you guys were building it out. You had issues with the gas. You got oh, yeah. that fixed, and then it was smooth sailing, right? Oh yeah, smooth sailing. <laughs> well, our the building we we occupied didn't have. They didn't have uh, what's called a certificate of occupancy. So we, which we had as a restaurant, and that's just like the certificate for people to occupy the space. And for us to get our liquor license that we'd already technically received, we needed them to have that. So that held us back a bit. Um, but we didn't want to, we already hired our staff, we did orientation, thinking that the license would just come any day now. And it didn't, so we had to open. And we were concerned about you know, pigeonhole, pigeonholing ourselves as just a daytime space where you can only have breakfast and lunch and there's no alcohol. And obviously alcohol is where you can really make some serious money. Um, so, but we had hired the staff and we didn't really want to have, we spent all that money training people. Um, and we had a team we felt really good about. So we didn't want to lose them. Uh, so we, we opened up just for breakfast and lunch, and throughout the process, we were trying to figure out ways to, to open up, I'm sorry, to get our liquor license in another way. So we thought about music festivals, the way they can serve alcohol, and it's just a temporary permit for public assembly. So we applied for that, and we learned later that's not, just not how it works. Uh, so we just like kept asking liquor lawyers Liquor Lawyers, a cool title. I don't know, you'd probably know more about that. I, I actually worked <laughs> at a, a law firm that specialized in beverage oh, really? back when I was in California because they were their main office was in San Francisco. So they worked with a lot of wineries and stuff. But so you know a little bit about that. There, Yeah, like beverage beverage law is a thing. But I'm glad that like, you know, you <laughs> you didn't have to dig too deep into that because no, they, eventually they, it came, right? Yeah, the license came. It was a huge day for us we definitely drank um <laughs> we had a good time um so that came and we opened for dinner it was kind of a blessing in disguise because opening up an all-day restaurant is it's a big undertaking and doing three meals a day is just it's just too much so i'm glad we opened like the, the way we did it was like a soft opening for the first was it three weeks i think without so the i'm license? trying to remember yeah i think that sounds about right i'm sure someone back at the restaurant will be able to tell me exact date. Um, I, I keep saying we've been open for like two months, but you know, if you do the math, it's a lot longer than that. Um, yeah. Yeah, about five and a half years. Yeah, months. it's almost a half a year, so. So what what have, what have been the highlights and, and the particular challenges since you've been open? What are, what are the moments that you that you got really excited and what, what's been really tough? Yeah, I think for, for me, the, I mean, the most difficult part is still what I was talking about being pigeonholed as a daytime place. You walk into our, our restaurant and it's very bright, it's very warm as I said, but it didn't necessarily lend itself to, to dinner or in other people's minds. And I think a lot of the press we've gotten has been focused on breakfast and lunch and brunch. Um, so what should we order for dinner? You mentioned rotisserie oh yeah. chicken, what else? Definitely our Poppy's duck. Okay. Poppy's duck is like one of my favorite things. It's you have to call ahead to get it, um, so that we are... How's it prepared? Uh, that's a good question for Will, um, but it's, uh, it's definitely, it's aged for a bit. Um, we, it's kind of like our take on Peking duck, um, and that is like, part of our childhood is, for me, as a Jew from New York, it's Sunday night Chinese food, 
Uh, and that was something that Nate and Will could both relate to. I never had duck growing up. It wasn't like a big part of our childhood. It was like sesame chicken, rice, and dumplings. More basic, but we all could relate to walking through Chinatown and seeing the Peking ducks hanging in the windows. And it was just something that was, was part of the landscape. And it's our version that we have a sweet and sour sauce, some chili, some chili sauce as well. And we do have a fried everything spice rice, which is like kind of like if you went to Benihana and you just got the fried rice on hibachi. It's our version of that. That's um, making me hungry. So what that's are, the, that's what the are we room. doing for dinner? I'm going to co-sign the dinner menu. <laughs> we should go back and then we can talk about it. Oh, yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Let's do it. Um, <laughs> offsite interview. Yes. <laughs> so uh, as we wind up the interview, we like to do our kind of fun rapid fire segment. So we're just going to throw a bunch of questions at you. You ready? All right. Let's do we're it. We're going to do another, another little shot of mezcal <laughs> before we dive into this. Let's do it. Uh, <laughs> Val, you want to start us today? Yeah. Okay. Let's keep it. Uh, let's keep it alcohol forward. Favorite cocktail. Uh, Negroni. Good answer. Do you have a particular way that you make it, or a? a... Um, I recently I really like the. I think I'm pronouncing this right. Spagliato, which is like it's it's a Negroni with sparkling wine on top. Mm. I think it's really nice in the summer. It just keeps it a little lighter. Mm. Uh, I could just be butchering that. <laughs> Who knows? <It> sounds good. <laughs> cool. Um, if you could master any skill overnight, what would it be? So useless, but uh, I think. I would like to learn how to cook a pig underground. That'd be kind of interesting. That's very specific. Yeah, really specific. I don't know. I've always been interested in that whole animal cooking. Have you witnessed this in your travels? No, I've seen it though. You know, like I think anyone interested in food, you've watched like Bourdain go on his food tours. And I saw, I think I saw that in one episode. I was just in the South and they were... I went to a few barbecue places. What? Where were you exactly? I was, I was in Charleston. Okay. Never had been. Summertime is really intense time to be there. Okay. <laughs> and, and I went to the two barbecue places, Lewis Barbecue and Ronnie Scott's. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. How was that? Ronnie Scott won the James Beard last year for his region. Yeah. So he's he's really hot right now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, both were incredible, and which is even more incredible is my my fiance that was with me is vegan. And she sat there for both of those meals for two days, like just watching me eat barbecue <laughs> and like watching me fall in love with it. She was a little jealous, actually, of how I looked at the meat, not, not, <laughs> not of me eating it. But uh, yeah, that, that was a, those were great places. Um, um, most interesting place you've traveled to? Um, or favorite place you've traveled? No, that's good. That's good. Um, I... Well, we were talking about Vietnam earlier. That was just one of the most interesting countries to to visit. Uh, I mean, culturally, historically, and then like, the cuisine there was just so good. I just love I love street food. It's just the best way to eat eat food and travel and just sit down on a plastic stool and eat a bowl of pho. It's like it's incredible. Yeah, I'm going to a, a restaurant called Van Da tonight, which I have read a lot about. They've gotten a lot of press. At regional Vietnamese cooking. From I think from Saigon, from Hanoi, and from Hue, which is in the middle of the country. So I haven't been there yet. But uh, where is that? Is that Manhattan? It's in, yeah, it's in Manhattan. It's in the East Village. I want to say. Anyway, do you know if that's the same people that have Dandy in Greenpoint? Is that this? I don't uh, think it uh, is. Okay. But there does seem to be this like moment for specifically regional Vietnamese cooking in New York. There's a lot of restaurants opening up. Um, yeah. Anyway, I'll. I'll yeah. Report back. Report, report back, back. Next week <laughs> how that how that goes. This might be a, a new thing for us. <laughs> Um, 
Uh, what's the best meal you've ever had that cost less than five or ten bucks? Maybe we covered that in your like plastic stool. You're like, yeah, I mean, that was definitely good. a memorable meal. Um, hmm. I think that may have been it. I I also remember when I was in China. I, I was with some friends there. One of the guys I was visiting is a diplomat there, and he was just taking us around. I didn't even know you like. I didn't know you could know diplomats. Yeah, like, <laughs> they work. They work for the State Department, and oh, so they're you know regular people. This. Like, well, yeah. I lived in DC, and I worked for the government for a while. Oh, really? But yeah, they're actually like. You, I mean, you probably met a few when you were living in I, I avoided them as much as possible. Yeah. Well, this they, one... they were too diplomatic for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this guy was really just like a down to earth kid. Um, one of my friends, uh, friend from home, and he took us around and just we just walked the streets, and he'd be like let's try this place like I think you really like it um, and I was kind of just eating whatever I could find just skewered meats but like the Szechuan cooking there was just incredible even though I couldn't really handle it, the heat for that long but I remember eating this this plate of uh, like Szechuan chicken and be like this is delicious but how do I how do I handle this and how how are we paying for this this is like a giant <laughs> feast and it was like 20 bucks or something like 15 bucks for an actual feast with like a lot of alcohol. I was like, hey, this is incredible. I gotta love those non-New York City prices. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Do we have time for one more? Yeah, sure, let's do it. Um, favorite kitchen utensil or kitchen utensil you can't live without? It's a good one. I mean, I I would love to say the knife, but my knife skills yeah. aren't that great. But I've, spatula. I think the spatula is very key. Oh, okay, the one that you flip or, like, a one that's, like, heat-proof rubber? Yeah, I think I'm the heat-proof rubber guy. Okay, uh, that's my favorite kind, too. Oh, yeah, that's what That's the ask. baker's your, kind. The rubber spatula, yeah. Yeah. Those are more, most, like, accessible, and, like, I think most people can use them for anything. I don't know how many restaurants have them, though. Rubber Maybe spatulas? Bakers do. Oh, I mean, you gotta... You use them all you gotta the time. You gotta fold yeah, that. Like, Fold those egg whites or yeah, fold that or getting in. a sauce out of a bowl. Oh yeah, that's or true. That's uh, true. You use them all the time. I gotta go to the prep kitchen more often. <laughs> is Valerie? Is that your favorite utensil, rubber spatula? Ooh, pro- probably. Okay. Yes. What, what else is in the running? Uh, I love my sifter. Ooh, well, it's like a, a, so a sla- <laughs> it's a sieve, but such I a, use it for. Such a baker and I yeah, sift. I sift everything through it. I strain. I do all the things with it. And what about you? Can I can I say Ooh. my fingers? Are fingers do fingers count? No, I think it's kind those of don't count. <laughs> I, I use my fingers for everything when I'm cooking. I like put them in the pan. I move things around. I flip things. Yeah, but they're not a tool because you know, like with the cavemen, they were like we became okay, human yeah, right, when right, we right. took point. something else. That's and, true. Uh, Amanda in the in the booth is laughing at this part of the conversation. It's, Ethan, it's you're not getting out of this. Amanda. You're not getting um, out of this question. Tongs, tongs, That's then. how you if know I can't, you won, right, right? Exactly. I, uh, if I yeah, if I can't do my fingers, then it's going to be tongs. That would be that would be the thing. That was like I felt like I had really become a line cook when I knew how to crack open a beer. With, with a pair of tongs. Like, you didn't need a, can- a bottle opener. You could just, like, flip it over That's badass. That's, That's like Edward Scissorhands-esque. Well, it's really like, not that hard. You just use the... Anyway, whatever. But, but, but not that hard cool. for you, yeah, the cool. line cook. Cool. <laughs> um, all right, well, Flip, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a pleasure having you. Where can our listeners uh, find Gertie, come for dinner? Uh, yeah, tell us. Yeah, thanks for that. having me. Um, you can go to Gertie. It's a Marcian Grand in Williamsburg. Uh, we're open every day. Uh, Mondays and Tuesdays we're closed for dinner but yeah we'd love to see you around for dinner we're doing an awesome happy hour right now Wednesday and Thursdays 
half bottles, half price on bottles. What time is the happy hour? <laughs> there you go. It's four o'clock. Four uh, till till seven. Four till seven. And right. what time are our dinner hours? We uh, we're open till ten on the weekdays and eleven on the weekends. And uh, where can people reach you if they have? I don't know, questions about Gertie, questions about opening a restaurant. Yeah, you can, uh, you can get in touch with me through our website, Gertie.nyc. Um, social I, media? Social media. I'm on Instagram. Uh, my handle's Flip Biddleman. Oh, no, what is it? It's Flipleman. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's Flipleman. And what's the Gertie social media handle? It's at GertieNYC. Awesome. And as always, you can reach us, uh, yfood at heritageradionetwork.org. Send us feedback questions nominations we've got a whole bunch of cool guests uh in what we have like three more four more weeks of the season yeah summer is uh is it is it ending because it feels like it's just beginning yeah seriously (laughs) anyway we've got we've got some cool people coming up and um yeah we're on instagram at why food podcast on on instagram and facebook you can reach me via my spice company burlap and barrel at burlap and barrel on instagram and you can reach me at on instagram at foodie in new york Uh, Thanks. See you next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.